Thank you, guys. As always, you've been a blessing to help lead us as we sing our praise to the Lord. But now as we prepare to worship the Lord through his word, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, as we begin reading in the 13th verse of Matthew 5. This week, Pastor Joe is with the team out in Wyoming, and we'll step outside of the Isaiah 53 to 54 passage uh, that we've been looking at, or Isaiah 52, 53, and we'll look instead at Matthew 5 this morning. Reading from the English Standard Version, God's Word says this, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall that saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you that whether we're reading from the Old Testament or the New Testament, Genesis, Revelation, or wherever, that your word speaks to us in a unique way because it is uniquely inspired. Though it was written through the hands of man, your spirit guided them, and you've given us something that is from you, and therefore it's authoritative. We thank you too, Lord, that your word is clear. You've put it in languages of people and, and used words that we can understand, and, and you've, you've made it clear to us, and you've granted us grace that we can hear a message from you, and we can even see it and hear it today, and each day that you've given us the opportunity to open your word. We thank you too, Lord, that we must hear from you. It's necessary that we hear from you. And so, Lord, we rejoice that you've communicated with us. You did not just create the earth and set it spinning and go away and let us figure things out on our own. We rejoice in that. And we rejoice, Lord, in the sufficiency of your word as well. For you've given us a, a word from you that we can hold in our hands. And you've put it in that which we need to know in order to, to walk in this world and, and able to serve you and know you and one day be with you in, in the age to come eternally. So, Lord, we rejoice in this even this morning. So would you please grant us grace now. Open our hearts as we open your word and grant us to understand what your spirit would say to us today. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was contemplating this scripture that is set before us this week, something came to mind, and that was I began to contemplate what I would consider at least in my opinion, probably what is the saddest scripture in all of the Bible, the saddest verse. And to look at it, we're going to have to look for just one moment at another part of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you want to turn, you can. If not, I'll just read it. It's in Matthew 26, and the verse is verse 50. I would consider personally this is arguably the saddest verse in the Bible, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Here's what it says, and I'm reading out of the ESV, and depending upon what your version is, it may say either Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come to do, or it may say, friend, why are you here? Either way is the translation of the same Greek words, which get to the, the, the motive. What is it that Judas is coming to Jesus for that moment? 
And of course, we know what happened. That is, this is the description of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas came. And when Judas came, Jesus looked at him, called him friend, and either said, do what you came to do, or friend, why are you here? Both, either way, gets to do with why. What was Judas's purpose? What was his motivation? And sadly, he betrayed the Lord that night. But praise be to God, even in man's worst things, man's worst motives and actions, the Lord can bring goodness from it. And in this case, he used it to bring about the, the death of the Lord Jesus, which would be the atoning sacrifice for his people. But nevertheless, it's sad because Judas, being one of Jesus' 12 apostles, betrayed him, a professed believer. Now back to Matthew chapter 5. And this is why I think this is such a, an appropriate thing to consider this morning to help frame what we're to look at. For Matthew chapter 5, what we've just read is part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's something that Jesus preached. And I want to see just for a moment to understand to whom this word was given originally. And it tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, seeing the crowds, Jesus had a lot of people who were following him during his earthly ministry. It says, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, look who came. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. So the Sermon on the Mount, though there was a large crowd in attendance, Jesus was directing his words to his disciples. And guess who was among those disciples that day? The same Judas who would later show up in the garden and Jesus would say, friend, do what you came to do. What was your motive? Or why are you here? What is your motive? What is it that your purpose is? What is your purpose? Sadly, Judas showed that his purpose was for something other than what the Lord gave him the instructions to do in the scripture we just read. For Jesus told his disciples that day, you are the salt of the earth. And he also told them, you are the light of the world. And that what they were to do was to be intended to glorify the Father. And that wasn't Judas's intention on that day. There were 11 other faithful apostles there that day, though, who did pay attention there were other disciples, too. When he says disciples, he's not just talking about the 12, but he's talking about the whole body of disciples who were present. And guess to whom this is addressed today as well? It's addressed to the disciples of Jesus today as well. And I think it's fitting that we would ask the same question that the Lord asked that day or the same challenge that he posed that day in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why are you here? What is it that you have come to do? Not just today, not just in this moment, but in life. Why are you here? And what is it that you're going to do? The Lord Jesus has given us a definition, a purpose in these verses that helps us to understand what a disciple's purpose is. And I'm going to invite you to look with me during the next few moments as we examine this together. First of all, notice with me, if you would, please, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. I would ask first to consider that the Lord has defined something of the identity of the disciple, the disciple's identity. Notice that Jesus says in both cases, you are. It is not a word of command. He is not saying, you go be. You do this. Nor it is a word of wish or, or 
saying, I wish you would be, or if you follow my commands, you will be salt, you will be light. No, he's saying right up front, you are salt, you are light. We call that in the indicative mode. It's not wishful, it's not a command. He's saying something that is already decided and fixed. You are that. That's important to pay attention to how wording is used in Scripture. It's important any time for that matter. But as the Lord spells out his words here in the Scriptures, one of the things we would do well to do is to understand what, when the Lord says you are something, whether he says it directly or whether he says it through his apostles in the, in, in the other parts of Scripture, the Lord is conveying certain truths to us, and we need to believe and, and base our lives on what he said we are. So, for example, one of the things the scripture tells us in, in Ephesians 2.8, it says, by grace, and again, this is written to, to believers, by grace you have been saved. You have been saved. There is a, a, a portion of God's saving work that is already done. It's accomplished. There's another way in which we are being sanctified, and that, that present tense is there. There's another sense in which salvation is yet to come that would be finally fully coming into his presence. But there is one sense in which that, that salvation has been settled already, that is being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, you have been saved, and we can believe in that. And there are certain believers who, who have trusted the Lord, and yet they're up and down worrying about whether they've done enough good works or whether they, if they, 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 they do something wrong today, whether they'll lose their salvation. Scripture says that's settled. Believe it. Believe what the Scripture says. By faith, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Scripture also tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It doesn't say he should be. It doesn't say he could be. It says he is. In other words, if you have become a follower of Jesus, you have been born again, the Spirit of God has come into you and you have new birth, there's something new in you. It is real. You are not the same person you were before that occurred. Now, you may think you're the same person, your name is the same. You pull out your ID, it has your name still on it. The picture is still you. Uh, you look in the mirror, it's the same person. Your vocabulary hasn't really grown much, and, and you haven't, your bank account's not much different. Maybe it's a little less even, because now you're giving to the Lord or something. But, but the point is that there is something that has actually happened, and you can believe that. You are a new creation. Trust him on that. Or Romans 8.15 it, it tells the church at Rome, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That's, that tells us two important things. First of all, the spirit, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. That's how new birth came. The spirit of God entered you, gave you new birth. And he's given you adoption as sons or children of God. It could be also be translated you are a child of God. It again, it's not saying you could be, you should be. It says you are. So when Jesus says in this scripture before us, you are salt and you are light. You are the salt of the, the earth. You are the light of the world. It's true. You can bank on it. He's saying something that we need to understand and grasp and remember. So, I mean, we would be kind of crazy, wouldn't we, if... if, if there are certain things that we have accepted and we, we disregarded that. Let's say this morning somebody stood up here and, and you made the declaration that you are a horse. We would look at you and we would think either you're joking or, you're, or you, you 
you're deluded, one or the other. And we would hope that it would be a joke, although it would not be a very good one. But the fact of the matter is that that would be a delusion. Or we could say, hey, we're not here in church. We're at the Grand Canyon. This is really a beautiful view. It's not as deep as I thought it was, but this is the Grand Canyon. That would be a delusion. No, we have to accept certain things that are true and real. And when the Lord says these things that is true and real and we need to not only believe it, it needs then to, to guide us in our activities. So what does that mean? Okay, so, so he's given us something about our identity. We know that we are salt and light if we are in Christ. So what? What does that mean? Does that mean that we're granules of, of sodium chloride? Does that mean that we're photons that are moving through the air at the speed of light? No, that's clearly not what he means. We are not that. But what does he mean? How is it that we are salt and light? First of all, I think we can look at these, his next descriptive terms. He talks about in verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There's something about salt that has certain properties. It, it needs to be salty. It needs to have the, the, the properties that salt has. You know, historically, when the Lord said this, uh, salt, even, it, it, it still has many properties that, that we observe, but one of the main properties that would have had then, and had for centuries, really until refrigeration came along, salt was a preservative. That was one of its chief uses, if not its chief use. You know, today we have a pack of meat or something, we put it in the refrigerator or the freezer so it will be preserved. But for centuries, for millennia, if you wanted to keep meat for a while, and not have it spoil, the way you would do that would be to, to rub salt into it. For the, the salt would, would help dry the, the meat out, and it would remove the, 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 the conditions of moisture that bacteria needed to be able to, to grow and to make the meat rotten. Meat would, would become rotten a lot slower because it had salt rubbed into it. Vegetables, too, it would be put into salt brine, and, and it would help them to, to last longer and not spoil so quickly. Salt is a preservative, and there's a way in which the church, God's people, are a preservative. Not, not, not in, in the same way, but, but be, by the, the work of the Lord in and through us. There's one way in which God's people historically were preservatives, by actually being in the world. Consider, for example, the Old Testament account of, of Noah. Noah, while he's on the earth, the Lord tells him to build an ark, and he's going to send rain and, and cause a flood which will destroy the earth. But while Noah's still building the ark, and while Noah's there and gathering the, the animals and so forth, no rains come and destroy the earth. But when the ark is ready and, 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 and it's time for to, to come, Noah gets on the ark, and, and when they're on the ark, then it's time. All bets are off. It's now time for the flood. God appoints it. And the preservative is, is lifted off the earth and the ark, and, and everybody else is destroyed. He's, he's been a preservative to that point. Or even Lot, in, in a little later in the book of Genesis, the, the Lord is going to destroy the city of Sodom and the other cities in the valley of, of, uh, there in, in, around the Jordan. And as he's going to do that, he, he, he tells Lot, Lot, get out of town. I'm going to destroy Sodom. He, he has to tell him to get out. And Lot says, well, I don't want to go all the way up into the mountains. I just want to go to another town nearby. And the angel tells him, okay, but I cannot do anything until you get there, so get going. And so while Lot was still, still on his way there, there was a, a, a period of mercy, of preservation. But as soon as he got to the appointed place, judgment fell. 
So there's a literal sense in which even the presence of, of these believing people uh, stayed the judgment for a season. But there's an even greater sense in which the church is salt and light. Part of that is because of the, first of all, because of the church following the teachings of our Lord Jesus. That we, by the way we live, affect society in such a way that it brings about a, a calming effect. It brings about a, a goodness and, and, and kindness. Many of the laws that we have that are taken for granted come through God's word. Laws against murder, God, laws against stealing. Uh, many of the things that, that have transpired have come about through it. The, the removal of slavery was largely driven by, in the West, by the church, by believing people who understood that God did not design us for that. that there are many things that the Lord has done through his people as a preservative to give glory to God. It's also a sense in which the ultimate thing that we can do is to bring the gospel. Whereas the gospel comes into the, into the world, the gospel brings about the preservation of lives eternally. Lives that would otherwise be spoiled and ruined by, by judgment and by an eternity in hell are saved and preserved eternally for God just as, as salt can preserve meat and it will not spoil. God saves through the gospel. The church is all part of that. We are to be salt, but we're to be salty salt and not to be salt which loses its salinity. That sounds strange to us when we talk about that because isn't sodium chloride sodium chloride? But at the time this was written, the kind of salt that they used wasn't pure sodium chloride. It would be uh, salt that was taken out of the ground or mined, if you will, and, and, and not necessarily in pure form. It might be, the, the sodium chloride would be adjoined to other granules. And it would, it would be possible for the sodium chloride to leach out, and you still have the granule that was left. And therefore, you would use that salt, you would hope it would preserve, but it, it, the meat would spoil. Or, or you would take that salt that, that had lost the sodium chloride, and you would use it to try to season food, and the food didn't change in its flavor. And therefore, that kind of salt would be useless, it would be thrown out. And though one of the things the Lord tells us here is that salt that has lost its saltiness, how will it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's true of the church as well, or a, a professing believer. If there is no distinction between the professing believer and the world which the believer is designed to, to enter and to interact with, something's wrong. If there's no distinction. Scripture talks about a, a word that we don't use very much anymore, and if we do, we usually use it in a negative way. The word is called holy, holy. Maybe it's on the front of your Bible. It may say Holy Bible or something like that on the front of it. And we think of holy as being kind of a, a, a stuck-up word maybe, or somebody's holier than thou. They think they're all that. They think they're so righteous and special, and they look down their nose at someone. But that's not the way the word was used originally. The word holiness has the idea of being distinct, being different. That distinction can be good or bad. But in the Bible, in the biblical context, it is almost always in a good sense because it's talking about the holiness, the distinction of God, and by extension, the distinctiveness of God's people from others who are not God's people, people who disregard God's teaching, who are not honoring him. God has called us to be people of holiness, this distinction which is marked by obedience to and trust in our Lord. 
And to the degree that we lose that, to the degree that we cave into the world's pressures, to that same degree we're like salt that has leached out the sodium chloride and is no longer useful. Imagine trying to, to, to season some food if you like a little salt on something, eggs, or, or you like some popcorn with some salt on it, and you dump some substance on it that you think is salt and it doesn't change the flavor at all. I'm not buying that salt anymore. But you know what? The world and the portion of the world that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who desires something new, something different, they know something's wrong, and they want to find the answer, and the answer is in Jesus Christ. The answer is in God and His Son. And they look around, and here comes a believer, and this believer is so compromised with the world that they don't talk about Jesus. They don't live the life of Jesus before them. And that person who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness finds no help from this person. That's like a useless grain of salt. No use at all. Might as well be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The Lord has called us to be like salt. That is salty. He's also called us to be like light. He said you are the light of the world. He doesn't say you should be. If you are in Christ, you have been injected with salinity. You've also been made to be light. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, that light has come into you and you've been illuminated from the time of your new birth. And as we are now in the world, we need to understand and believe that we really are these things. How is it that we are like light? Well, first of all, light illuminates. Where there was no light, you could walk into a dark room, you don't know what's in that room. There might be something in there that you trip over or something that you bump into. might even be somebody in there who will do you harm. But when that room is illuminated, you can see clearly where, where there might be danger or there might be something that's needed. Christians are like that. We should be living if we are bright light and we're shining as we should. We will be exposing the truth because we base our lives out on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And as we live that out, the distinction between the life of the follower of Jesus and the life of those who do not follow Jesus should be seen clearly. Not as a holier than now looking down the nose, but as somebody just going through life loving the Lord and loving their neighbors. And others see this. And that hunger and thirst for righteousness that is in the heart of some people will draw them to that one. Light penetrates that darkness. It can be seen for a long ways. Have you ever been in an aircraft and you've flown over at nighttime over a uh, maybe a, a wilderness area. You can, you're, you're flying several miles up, and you can look down, and you can see down below just darkness. You don't even know what's down there. But suddenly, way over there, you see there must be somebody that has a cabin out in the woods or something out there, because you see one little light that's way down there. And you're miles up, and there's nothing else for miles, but you see that one light. It doesn't matter that you're miles away. It stands out. If we were in this same room and we turned off all the lights and sealed all the doors and, and, and so that it was pitch black in here, shut off all the emergency exit lights and all that stuff, it'd be really dark in here. But if one person even turned on one little flashlight, that light would glow over the whole room to some extent. It would no longer be totally dark. You would have some degree of visibility even with a small light. A little light makes a big difference. A little salt makes a big difference, too. If you have a pound of meat, you don't get a pound of salt and dump that pound of salt on that pound of meat, do you? You take a fraction of that salt 
and it, it will affect and season that meat, or it will preserve the meat if that's what you're trying to do. And just so, a small number of believing people when sent into a community or the world can make a difference and have made a difference down through the ages. Look at the earliest church, this small group of disciples in Jerusalem after the Lord's earthly ministry in which he had fed 5,000 miraculously with loaves and fish and ministered to thousands and thousands. In Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people gathered together, about 120 that were in Jerusalem as the church. That's all. But within a very short time, that 120 or so became thousands because the Lord worked through that little bit of salt and that little bit of light, through his word, through them shining radiantly. That still is how the Lord works. My friends, we are salt. We are light. But wait a minute. Didn't the Lord say something about the identity of the light? Yes, in John chapter 8, 12, Jesus said that he is the light of the world. But now here he's saying here in verse 14 of Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Now, which is it? Is he the light of the world or is the church the light of the world? Well, how about understanding it like this? Around the earth, we see the sun. We see the sun during the daytime and it shines brightly and, it, and we have to wear our sunglasses and, or get shade because it's so intense. But at night, we see the moon. Where does that moon light come from? Does the moon have an internal uh, light, illumination from inside of it? No. The, the moonshine that we see is merely the reflection of the light from the sun. But I suggest that the church, as the church is light, that the church is really a conduit of the light of Jesus Christ. We don't have our own inherent light apart from him. Apart from the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shining in the hearts of the church, we're just like the moon. We would just be a big ball of dirt, if you will, unless we reflect the light of the sun, in this case, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So the Lord has told us that we are light. Again, he didn't say we should be. He didn't say we could be. He didn't say we ought to be. He said we are. Do you know that? Do you believe it? You know, sometimes I think the church is so fearful because we seem so outnumbered. We can be intimidated because so many people seem to not believe. They seem to be either benignly indifferent or openly hostile to the gospel. But the Lord has told us that we are salt and we are light. If so, then we need to believe him and we need to trust him. Thanks be to God that this message has been believed down through the ages that's why that group of disciples, 120 people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, was faithful. And by them spreading the word, it continued to spread. And now here we are, thousands of miles away, an ocean apart and on a different continent, right in the middle of that other continent, talking about Jesus Christ this morning. That's still true. My friend, the scripture tells that the church is still salt and light. So we know something about our identity, we are salt and light. We know something about the properties that we have, penetrating, light, uh, and so forth. But how is it then we do the final thing that he says, which is really our purpose? It's why we're here, at least in part. Jesus said in verse 16, in the same way, in the same way that light shines, or the same way that salt should work, in the same way that light shines, and particularly in verse 16, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The purpose is to let our light shine to the end that it will give glory to our Father in heaven. That there is necessity, and this applies a few, a few things that are essential. First of all, it implies interaction. That is, that nobody's going to see your light shine if you're not in the presence of darkness, if you're not in the presence of people who need to see. If, as the Lord said earlier, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. You know, if I come into the room with a flashlight, the room's dark, I don't immediately lay the flashlight on the floor and put something over it so I can't see it. What use is that? People need to see the light. The light needs to be interacting. It needs to be out there where it's visible and illuminating the darkness. There is a need for interaction. The same thing for salt. One way that salt can be unsalty, practically speaking, is leave it in the salt shaker. Uh, it's not seasoning anything. It's not preserving anything if it's just left in the salt shaker. The church needs to be interactive. There is a temptation also to get a bunker mentality sometimes when we're at the church. It seems like there's, there, there's oppression and, and things around us. So sometimes the desire is just to get, huddle together, circle the wagons, and stay with each other. But that's not what the Lord has called us to do. The Lord has called us to interact, to go out into the world and to shine the light of the gospel, to be salty salt. And to be salty salt, we have to be out among those who need to be seasoned, to be preserved. It also involves being in the right place. Just as a, a person who, who, who lights a lamp puts it where it can give the maximum light, you know, you, you, don't, you don't put a light where nobody's going to, 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 to see it. Uh, nobody's going to go to the trouble to install lights where nobody will watch it. We're in this room, and, and we have lights that are, that are positioned so that it gives maximum lighting in an appropriate way in this room. We need to consider that as well. When we consider where we are placed in life or what we do, how much thought do you or how much thought do I give to whether that glorifies God? Is that a consideration for your placement in life? It should be. Think about it for a moment. One of the things the scripture tells us is way back in Genesis 13, there was a guy named Lot. Remember Abram, Abraham, and Lot, his nephew? They moved to the promised land, and they were living there together, and they were both rich guys. They had lots of herds and lots of employees and so forth. And they were, they were kind of stepping on each other's toes. And so, so Abraham told Lot, hey, Lot, go, why don't you move somewhere else? You pick where you want to go, and, and, and I'll, or you, if you want to stay here, I'll move. You just pick where you want to go. And Lot looked, and he saw green pasture land toward the Jordan River. And he said, I want to go over there. And that sounded like a great idea. He, he made an economic decision to go and move. His decision was based on economy. We read nothing about prayer from him. We just read about him making an economic decision. And so he moved to the city of Sodom. And he would spend about the next couple of decades living in Sodom. And it really messed up his family and his life. Sometimes we need to consider more than just, hey, where can I get a job? Or more than just, hey, What's, what's an advantageous place for me to, 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 to do something? What, what would be pleasing to me? What would be pleasurable? We just look down this angle or that angle, and we, we don't think about the glory of God. The outcome of that might be something like putting a lamp under a, ba a basket. But we should think about the glory of God. It should be a concern to us. And we should pray 
It can be that simple as seeking the Lord in prayer and chugging his word and asking for guidance, walking the way the Father would have us walk. But there's another aspect to this as well. And this is where we, we have great hope this morning, church. It says that nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but on a stand. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, guess how you got that condition. Guess how you came to be lit, if you will. You're a lit lamp if you're a follower of Jesus. That was by God's doing. You did not light yourself. And the implication of this verse is that the one who lights the lamp is the one who places it. So guess what? Wherever you are right now, you are placed somewhere so that you can give your light to the glory of God. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I didn't do what you said earlier. I didn't really pray before I took my present job. I didn't pray to God before I bought my house. I did it out of strictly uh, practical ideas. But you know, God is, is not so bound that he cannot also still work through man's folly or ignoring him. Consider the Joseph in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. Joseph had some brothers who sold him into slavery. They didn't pray about that before they did it. They hated him, and they sold him into slavery. And then he got traded and ended up, uh, ended up in prison and all kinds of bad things happening to him. It seemed like his life was falling to pieces. He wasn't where he would have been at all until the circumstances worked out so that God placed him at the right place to be appointed basically the prime minister of Egypt bringing him from prison to that lofty position and had him in position so that when there was a famine in the promised land, his family could come and he could provide for them. And Israel would stay in Egypt for a lengthy period of time and would multiply until they were literally a nation and not just a little family anymore. Then they would return and move back into the promised land, which God gave to them. Joseph wasn't where he wanted to be. But God put him there nonetheless. And Joseph would realize that. He would tell his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God can place you, and he has placed you where you are. Trust him. Ask him today, Lord, what would you have me to do where I am? Do you yearn to seek the Lord? Do you yearn to serve him? Begin where you are. Don't wait until you're somewhere else. Follow him today and serve him shining where you are. Don't wait. And if things change, trust him. Trust him. Because he may be relocating you to a better positioning for the light that is in you to shine before others. Trust him. This morning as we're gathered here today, this word is still presented to us as well today. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father. Your Father. Not just, he doesn't just use the word God, not just a generic term. He uses your Father because he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who have that relationship, that, that, that parent-child relationship, a loving relationship, a dependent relationship, a relationship that establishes, if you will, resemblance. We talk about that from time to time, don't we? Family resemblance. Hey, you look just like your mom. You look like your dad. You have some of both of them in you. But when we talk about the, the believer's resemblance to God, we're not talking about a physical resemblance, are we? 
Scripture tells us that, that God is spirit. You don't see him. The likeness that we have is a spiritual likeness. And if we are been born again, his spirit indwells us. We are shaped in the same way that the Lord Jesus is. That we, we look like our heavenly father because the Lord Jesus is, is like him. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in the heart of the believer to make us look like we're part of the family of God. And so as they see us living out the life that God has called us to live, they see the family resemblance if they understand the Word of God. We, 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 we are called to the end that this is to glorify God, and that's one of the most important factors of this charge, of this purpose. We are not to let our light shine before others in such a way that they see our good works and glorify us. We are not to do this so they say, man, you're a great person. Oh, you're a great group of people. If that's what this church achieves, that we go out and minister in Jesus' name and then the end result is that people just give us applause, we have failed miserably. We're not shining well and our saltiness isn't very good. But if the outcome of it is that the Father is glorified. The name of Jesus is lifted up. Praise be to God. Our light is shined as it should. Praise be to the Lord. Because ultimately, it's not about us. It's about Him. We're to let our light shine through our family resemblance, through the sharing of the Word of God, and by reflecting the life of Jesus Christ, His light through our lives. What is your purpose this morning? Why are you here? May the answer that we give by our actions as well as by our lips be better than the answer that Judas gave when the Lord asked him that on the day or spoke to him on the day when the Lord was arrested. May we be among those who would pay attention and may we say that our purpose is to let our light shine before others so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. How do we do that? by depending upon the one who gives us the light, by looking to Jesus, the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, looking to him for the grace to do that. For if we try to do this on our own, if we say, I'm going to clench my fists and grit my teeth and I'm going to let my light shine no matter what, we will fail miserably. But if we look to the Lord and ask him to let his light shine in us, if we look in his word and say, Lord, I trust you, and we walk and deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus as he grants us the grace to do so, we'll find that our salt is good and salty and our light is shining brightly to his glory. We may not always realize it in this light. Perhaps you feel like your light isn't shining very well, but you're just being faithful to the Lord. Your light is probably shining more brightly than you think. Trust the Lord. On that day when you appear before him, you'll find out. Trust him today, though, and walk shining as the Lord grants you grace. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are grateful for this word. We are grateful that you have told us the purpose of the disciple, that we are to let our light shine before others so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father. Lord, help us to do so. We do not have the strength in ourselves, of ourselves, to do this. We acknowledge that. But Lord, we acknowledge that you have not told us this, this commandment to torture us. You've not told us this condition to, to make us feel uh, like we are, have no hope. But you've told us these things that we might seek to do them and that we would come to you for grace, that we would be 
vessels of salt and light. Lord, help us to do that. And today, Lord, if there are those here who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and they have not yet turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus, may you, Lord, you may be pleased to open their hearts. May they cry out to you, and we know that you will answer the heart that cries out to you, Lord. Help them. Help us that we be faithful to you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.